Welcome to another edition of the Marketing Science Podcast, the podcast for sales and marketing professionals working within science, engineering, and healthcare. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you usually listen to your podcasts. My name is Frank Barker, the head of marketing at Azo Network, where you can also subscribe. And I'm joined by my guest today, Andy Henton, CEO of Inside Scientific Solutions, an online environment built for life science researchers. Andy has a distinguished career working within life sciences and science communication. Andy, how are you doing today? Great, Frankie. Thanks for having me. Given the current coronavirus pandemic, uh, how are businesses in life sciences and healthcare, how are they reacting? You know, those in a strong financial position that were already heavily invested in digital and content marketing, they're doubling or tripling down. And, and so they are doing more webinars, more writing, blogging, videos, podcasts, articles, you name it, social media, they're everywhere. And um, in some cases, they're really crushing the competition. Um, everybody's living in their shadow. On the flip side, those that are in a more restrictive or tight financial position, um, they've naturally locked down spending and uh, taken time to regroup. I'd say these companies are now coming forward with new strategies, uh, uh, but it predominantly calls upon the expertise of uh, their existing staff. Uh, product managers, application experts, and, and uh, sales teams, uh, all these folks are shifting their roles to include tasks that you know, were traditionally managed by uh, the marketing team. Uh, so the question for these companies now, and at least in my opinion, is exactly how um, and when do they start investing money in marketing, lead generation, and branding again? Uh, all companies need to pivot quickly, find new ways to invest and climb out of that position that's being forced upon them. Yeah, it was very interesting when I was speaking with Randy Byrne on the pod a few weeks back. Um, he's the CEO of Transformational Scientific Marketing. Um, he was saying that during the last global financial crisis, they were already very strong or they had a strong webinar um, position. So they'd had like 90 English language webinars and countless um, various other languages from the rest of the world. And what that allowed them to do was establish themselves and give them give that company that he was working for at the time a, a real foothold in terms of their thought leadership um, in providing the content and educating their audience. So, you know, people aren't just going to stop using the internet. Scientists aren't going to just stop, um, you know, sit on their hands whilst they're at home. They're going to be trying to research and look into areas as how they how they can get better at their job and how they can understand and learn more. And on that, it's it's interesting to see how companies are pivoting and their sales teams are using social media, social selling, um, and how more of the the role of the salesperson nowadays is to do a bit more of the marketing, uh, particularly when it comes to the social selling side of things. So yeah, fascinating insight. Um, what would you say that clients are particularly struggling with right now during the current pandemic? Uh, there's a number of things that we're seeing. Not having the expertise in-house to plan and implement their digital marketing objectives that's a that's a pain for for some clients of ours uh, that they've just never had the expertise in house. Uh, bandwidth uh, is is another one, and uh, it's just always a challenge not having enough time to get to everything you want to do. And I think this is also a theme in marketing is that there's so many great things that marketing com- that companies want to do within the marketing space, and there's not enough uh, strategy in saying, well, let's do that well rather than a lot uh you know at a half job so as with anything i find there's probably 10 things you could do 
Whereas you should really be focusing on maybe the three or four things that you can absolutely smash out the park. Yep. So, but we are seeing this, right? Uh, companies want to do more now than ever. So the bandwidth challenge is like, if for some are, is likely increasing. Uh, another big one's technology. And this comes from a, a number of angles, right? Uh, the, the mainstay here is most companies have been transitioned to a work from home. And so that means teams, individuals are now adjusting to new workflows, new ways of communicating with their colleagues. Managers are shifting to new ways in which they have to lead, uh, assign tasks, track progress, make sure things are being done. So all of this collectively means that um, companies as a whole and employees need to embrace new technologies. Yeah, absolutely. So Microsoft Teams, Slack, Monday.com, Basecamp, Trello, all of these fantastic uh, productivity tools. Uh, but you know, they're only as good as the buy-in. So it, it, you've got to have everybody backing it. Otherwise, they just simply won't work. Um, it is funny, though. I think the working week say even sort of 10, 15 years ago, you'd turn up and you might have a couple of, you might have five em- emails in your inbox and that was your week's work. But now you're constantly getting pinged. There's notifications, there's people tagging you um, from all the different platforms that you're using. I think you're re- it's really important to be able to distinguish and be able to prioritize what's urgent and what's important, what's both and what can, what can maybe be, be left or delegated. The reality is, is that the implementation and the adoption of technology is what makes it great in a company. And that's not something that necessarily the technology addresses itself, right? So these teams that need to communicate, if they're not really going to adopt it and, and sometimes even struggle through that initiation phase, you won't ever come to benefiting from the, what the, the value that the technology provides. Absolutely. You can make a good plan, a great plan, if, if you just have buy-in from every, everybody. Um, all right. So whereabouts do you see the online events fitting in with the current sales funnel? Today, I'd say it's uh, top to bottom, soup to nuts, you know, start to finish. I'm seeing more and more online events or even just online initiatives being planned with a focus to really address late stage buying questions and even usher that person into the um, uh, process of the close. But another thing that I see is on the rise, and it's not exactly online events, but it's the use of video just in itself to um, engage buyers beyond the typical email and phone that was so common leading up to the pandemic. Uh, Products like Vidyard or GoVideo are are, um, being used by sales reps just to have more of a, a connection, you know, with those that they're trying to do business with. Video obviously presents an opportunity to show your body language and show empathy and have that human connection in a, at least a virtual situation. I even found out on LinkedIn the other day that you can leave voice notes as messages. You know, those kinds of, and those kinds of uh, video sales messages that, that are less than 30 seconds, they can be so punchy and powerful when delivered properly. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you think, right, I'm dealing with a real person uh, here who's got lots of passion and really believes in their product. And that really, you know, comes across so much better in a video than it would just in like, you know, any of the other hundred or so emails that you get on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And it's, and it's, uh, and it's a good point. And that video is not just for that initial introduction. The video can even be used to, to go over, you know, reviewing of quotes, signing of contracts, 
you can obviously give someone a contract and say, can you please sign this and to return this to me by email? But it's, I would argue it's so much more personable to say, can you meet me online in a video conference? We can review the contract together and you can digitally sign, right? People, people do business with people. This is where video and online events and all this type of thing, they can be used at a later stage. Yeah. In those kinds of, in those online ID management services, like the crypto signing companies, say DocuSign, Adobe, mm-hmm. I think even Dropbox are doing it now. Um, I can only see that now the world is becoming even more and more remotely you know, decentralized mm-hmm. um, for the working people working from home. You can't, I can't just wander down the down the hall and get four signatures on a on a piece of paper. You've got to have a solution that's better than printing and faxing. That's the bane of my life is printing stuff out. Um, you know, you can't just say, can I get your signature on this? So you need something that's going to be able to facilitate that yep. and not hold deals up. Absolutely. I agree. And, uh, and those companies that are looking at these technologies and then, uh, thinking forward, thinking ahead to say, how can we personalize digital workflows? I think they will succeed in having your sales team, your marketing team, your management team as a whole say, how can these tools, these digital tools, you know, communication through webcam and be utilized in any step of doing business to be at a, you know, to connect with our buyer. Uh, I think, I think those companies will see uh, dividends on that. I mean, that's already reflected in, in the stock market, the companies that are doing or have already, you know, bounced back past where they were pre COVID pre the big dip. Uh, so yeah, that, plenty more of that to come. Um, mm-hmm. All right. So moving on to the next question, um, how would you compare online events to the old school trade show or, or the conference? Mm-hmm. Could you ever see the trade show being completely replaced? Oh, this is a great question. It's being asked so much right now in our space. Um, no, I don't think uh, online events will replace trade shows and conferences. For me, thinking about it, a few things come out. And the, and the first thing really is, is how online events are great for creating agendas where participants can consume 100% of the content and participate in everything the program has to offer. The content can be delivered over a longer period of time and also consumed um, days, weeks, or months after in comparison to a typical bricks and mortar event. Most scientific conferences and trade shows in our space have attendees being forced, they're forced to pick and choose, you know, where they'll be at a specific time, what symposia they'll participate in, what, what, uh, posters they will have an opportunity to go and and read and then connect with the author of that poster so online events really shine there being able to be structured in such a way where participants can really consume 100 percent of the agenda uh the second subject is is networking and we're talking a lot about this a lot with a lot with our clients this is and never will be the same as connecting with your colleagues and friends or, or obviously making new contacts at a trade show or conference face to face just it, it won't be the same. Yeah. So I've I've been on some online events and virtual coffee calls, and it's a bizarre online room full of strangers who you've never met before. But you, you obviously try your best, um, but like, like you say, it's really just not the same. Um, but what specifically about the what data should I be looking to collect from my online events? So if you think about online events, so webinars and virtual meetings, these are purposely built for data capture. You know who attended, you know how to contact them, their interests, where they're from, what they're looking for, their problems, and um, and and why they are there. The registration forms, 
that are central to kind of planning these events and collecting participation and registration and payments, if that's part of it, you know, that marks the first point in that process to start collecting data. And then things like polls and surveys and questions that people can submit, handouts, resources, and any number of call to actions. These all collect work together um, to collect and track and, and ultimately build a profile of that individual. You take that concept and you try to move that over to a bricks and mortar event, it's virtually impossible to collect that data on every participant in such a way that the data is manageable. For online, there's a host of information, often in a case too much to go through, <laughs> but it's a good problem to have. And and that's a big, big, big comparison between online events and trade shows and conferences. I do remember my first couple of trade shows that we went to. Um, it would be We'd say we met 200 people and the sales guys would be like, brilliant, who did we meet? Uh, and, and what did you speak to them about? So I, I remember thinking, oh God, I just remember I could I could just about manage a list of 200 people, but the depth of conversation, that was lost. Uh, so I couldn't remember any of that. <laughs> There's just you know that much going on. So you multiply that by a few people on your booth. Uh, so you've got five people on your booth and you say, all right, you've all had 100 conversations each. Then it's just a nightmare keeping track of all those individual conversations and data points on you know the pain points and who's interested in what solutions, mm-hmm. what are people's biggest challenges, etc. It's a nightmare. But it, like you say, in virtual events, the webinars, it's a lot easier because it's it's all very trackable via data. And you can put it in the form and right in front of people. So in this case, you're an exhibitor. You're going back. You have 200 data points, and you're trying to make sense of that for your team. Now think about the conference organizer. Their interest might be, I want to know all the booths that that person went to. I want to better understand why they're getting value out of this exhibition floor, what answers they're trying to solve. I also want to understand what events they went to and why they chose those ones over other ones they couldn't attend during the three days or four days that the conference was hosted. Think about that level of data and now take 10,000 attendees, 20,000 attendees. That informs how they can expand it next year right. and how they can, you know, we need more on, along this track, for instance, or maybe a little right. bit less of this because... You've got it exactly. The the example of the vendor and their data points is actually a small bucket, right? Whereas the big data capture is uh, actually for the event organizers and the large sponsors and coordinators of it. When you look at what can be captured over a three-day virtual meeting online with 10,000 individuals signing on and moving through data, it's it's an overwhelming amount of data. But it is extremely powerful once it's processed for those event planners uh, for them to improve upon the programs moving forward, but also work closer with their sponsors and supporters and exhibitors to give them insights as to what they should be doing on the industry side. You mentioned like a, a three-day meeting online. Um, on that, how would you explain the difference between a, a single webinar or how would you use a webinar series to nurture and educate your audience? I mean, this is a great question as well. And and while a single webinar represents the opportunity to learn and participate in one event, in contrast, when you t- when we talk about webinar series with our clients, what we're really talking about is trying to create a program that invites a participant or someone within their target market to learn with them over multiple events over a longer course of time. So, a webinar series and such can 
is a is a program you can look to literally nurture someone through as a way to bring in leads to their funnel, but also nurture them through the funnel, presenting multiple opportunities for them to learn and go on a journey with them, so to speak. When companies take the time to plan a series, it's very similar to planning a sales process. And this is more common, right? I would argue that more companies have a sales playbook, things that they want to walk people through once they've become a qualified lead, demos, reviews, executive sponsorship or buy-in budgets. And it makes a lot of sense to sales managers and executives. They go, of course we need that. When it comes to marketing, it's not as clear. It seems to be like these type of uh, programs and initiatives where people are saying, well, of course we should do a series of webinars because it presents an organized plan to lead people towards becoming a customer. And so I would actually, I would challenge those people. If, if you're someone who's sales and marketing, try to make that connection, right? You don't go into sales and wing it. You have a game plan. So a webinar series is like a game plan for, for content. Absolutely. Important to have a game plan and a consistent, repeatable message. Um, and, you know, touch point here and maybe move them down the funnel as they become more and more educated, but always looking to educate. Now, moving on to talk about virtual events. As far as I'm concerned, it seems as if a virtual event would be like having a series of webinars and pre-created content, video content, but with a bit of a countdown timer on it um, and maybe a chat function on the side and maybe a few other extra bells and whistles. Uh, but how do you view the difference between a large virtual exhibition, for instance, and a series of webinars? This is different from a single webinar and a webinar series because it really brings in uh, the objective to blend webinar content, video, you know, uh, presentations and sessions where you have people in, in, a, in the audience participating and asking questions, etc., to flank that with one, a number of them in the program, but add in things like virtual posters or direct on-demand content, you know, videos people can watch and learn. Um, promotional videos could also be of a corporate nature. Uh, so naturally virtual meetings usually bring in a whole different perspective on exhibitor spot or not exhibitor sponsorship, but just sponsorship in general, right? Uh, vendor partners. Um, and then the other one is networking, right? Networking sessions, round tables, uh, uh, ways for, for those participants to really connect with each other. Um, uh, so, and then naturally these, these events are usually ho hosted over multiple days and, and, pl and, uh, event planners are looking at driving thousands of participants through, through these platforms over a relatively short amount of time. Uh, so, so that, that big differentiator on virtual meetings and webinars is, is about scale of content and, and how much you, how much you're, how many people are moving through the program. Okay. So given that at these events, you might have scientists presenting their work, uh, you might have companies doing product launches. Um, but now everything's basically been thrown up in the air. Uh, the playbook's been torn up and everyone's been locked down to work from home. How can scientists um, take advantage of that and, and still present their work online? There's a simple answer here. Is that scientists can take it upon themselves to share their work. And I guess you could say there's two options here. You can go the DIY approach and embrace a number of technologies to share your work. We're seeing small groups uh, from universities or uh, smaller societies band together and simply say, hey, we want to share our work. 
It doesn't need to be fancy. It doesn't need to be um, polished. It doesn't need to be an attempt to produce you know, a video quality at the Lord of the Rings. We don't need post-processing and after effects here in Adobe. People simply need to get online, share their webcam and be authentic and share their science. So that's one way to go about it. Uh, the other way is, is to seek platforms uh, and programs that are, and there's lots of them coming out right now, where um, your work can be shared as part of a, a program or an initiative as a virtual poster. Um, we're encouraging scientists within our network to reach out to us if they want to participate in webinars uh, and simply get involved. So this is how I see scientists currently presenting their work with the fact that almost all conferences are shut down and also all internal programs are shut down. Okay, so with scientists starting to present their work online, uh, how do you think that's going to affect the pace or the acceleration with which scientific discovery and research is shared on a global basis? So the concept of open access publication is uh, very, very top of mind right now. The U.S. government is going through reviews on this subject and is likely to move forward on specific circumstances in which discoveries that come from certain funding models must be forced to open access publications so that all scientists can benefit from the knowledge immediately and accelerate things faster. So whether it's a, a government initiative, right, trying to adjust the publicate peer review publication model, model and uh, improve access, open access to discovery, or whether it's just at the scientist level, right? Scientists are the leaders on this subject. They've always shared their work. There's obviously a, a fundamental acknowledgement of also making sure that quality science is shared, that true, that discoveries are vetted, and that those that are making these discoveries and putting the work are those that are accredited with the discovery and, and uh, innovations. So, but provided that can stay in check, I'm going, I, I believe that uh, scientists themselves will be participating in programs as active as they can to ensure that their work is accessible. And you see a lot of examples of this is there's a, a group, smaller groups and companies coming together where uh, it really is a open source type of um, sharing of, of, of results. And, and it's fantastic. So I do think in the years to come, we will find that uh, the path towards discovery and innovation will be quicker. And, I, and hopefully this will accelerate um, uh, the discovery and application of cures for diseases and things that's obviously top of mind right now, vaccines um, uh, for certain illnesses that are that's obviously needed right now. That's exactly the reason why Azon was started, which was the original parent company of Azo Network. So the CEO, uh, Dr. Ian Birkby, was frustrated that there was no way online where he could share his information. Always had to go to the library, he kept telling us. Um, just the old school publishing model where the publisher would charge a scientist to upload journal and research content, and then it charged another scientist, another researcher to download it. So a double dip, if, if you like. Um, now, that's a broken model, which is ripe for disruption, especially right now. Um, and I believe that it's in the interest of the human race that we, mm -hmm. we share all academic research and science as much as possible in order to fight the current COVID pandemic. 
on that, scientists now having to become presenters and learning audiovisual and presentation skills to present online, um, it can be quite daunting as soon as someone shoves a microphone mm-hmm. or a webcam in, in your, your face. It's, it's alien. Um, so what tips would you have for a scientist who's looking to do a virtual poster or a video on demand? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's some very practical tips. Uh, one, practice. So practice your delivery, not because you don't know your work, but because the environment that you'll be presenting in is a bit foreign, right? So scientists are used to standing up in front of a, a, a room of peers, and um, you know the the scientific content is back of hand. They they know they know it uh, inside out. So the way that they present their work is very natural and authentic and they're responding to the cues in the room right and there might be interruptions and you know can you elaborate on that and then typically online it's a bit more structured right you're given the virtual stage and you're asked to present so it feels weird i guess is what you could say for most of the feedback we get from a lot of our web those that participate in webinars with us is they say oh it went great but wow was that ever weird to talk for 60 minutes and not really have any audience cue or interaction or body language to read off of, um, uh, you know, other practical considerations. Usually when you present, you move your hands, you move your body, you walk around, you might have props like a screen you're pointing at behind you, which is your PowerPoint. When you present online, especially also if a webcam is involved, you really need to be looking forward and presenting and stay engaged. That body language is still encouraged, but it's again, in comparison to the live thing, most that do it for the first time find it very awkward. So practicing that, staging that environment and doing it a bit is encouraged because then you just get a little bit more fluent. Um, watching yourself back as well, of course, because it, it might be a bit cringy to start with. I, I remember the first time we did web- webinars with you guys. I, I hated it. I really couldn't stand the sound of my own voice. Um, <laughs> I can't believe I sound like that. Uh, but but then you realize everybody hears you like that every day. And yeah. once you get used to yep. hearing your own voice, exactly, it's fine. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. You got to get used to hearing yourself and seeing yourself and also put away that, um, yeah, again, that, that, uh, that very common reaction is that everybody doesn't like the way they sound or look or, oh, I do that that way. Well, you, you hit the nail on the head, Frankie. It's like, well, you actually do it that way and we all like you for it. So embrace it and be yourself. And that, and that actually brings me to, the, to that other point to stress is, is be authentic. So the, the best webinars, um, I would argue, are those that th- they, they carry all the ums and ahs and the pivots and things like that because it, it, there, there's place for polished presentations online for sure. And we do them all the time at Insight Scientific. But if we just really nail what the scientists are looking for, they're looking for an opportunity to virtually connect with a colleague in their space, learn about their work. They don't expect you to be the equivalent of a news anchor delivering this content uh, online and have the perfect lighting in your room and the background and all of that. That's, that's not what they're looking for in this environment. They're just looking for you, your time, your attention. They want to hear you share your work. And then importantly, they want to be able to interact with you. So, um, you know, we always include questions and answers in our webinars, but we often encourage our clients, and I will right now for those that are listening, having longer Q&A sessions and giving an opportunity just for some conversation with presenters is really encouraged. It's often what um, 
the audience likes the most out of a scientific webinar is is the the chatting at the end often where the ideas flow from so you mentioned authenticity i suppose the trade off with authenticity is is like polished production which would lead me nicely on to the next question mm-hmm. uh, what are simulated live events yeah this is a great question so you can still be authentic in a simulated live event. You're just being authentic a couple of weeks beforehand, and that uh, event is um, uh, present creates a recording, and then that recording is what is broadcast back to the live audience on the day of a webinar. So, the you know quote unquote the term simulated live event in our world it means we're getting together with the presentation group, we're creating or recording the the content in advance. And then we're replaying that back to an audience, but in such a way that the way they're engaging it in that 60 minutes really just feels like a live webinar, no different if they were there in the moment, the presenters, that is. Um, What this introduces, what a simulated live event introduces is the opportunity to create, as you say, Frankie, like polished content. You You can better plan and stage the delivery of certain things. So presenters can walk over videos and and perfect their narration of the video. You can um, better fade in and out from different formats. An example might be a presenter going over a bunch of slides, then wanting to transition into sharing their screen and going over how they maybe manipulate data in a software. The companies we're planning these events with and the presenters themselves say, you know what, I would love the opportunity to just kind of record those parts and pieces blend them together, you know, um, uh, in video editing software, and then bring that on and broadcast that back to the audience. And, uh, yeah. A bit like a TV program where, where you'd cut to the videotape. Um, I prefer that approach because it de-risks the whole situation because there's nothing technical that can go wrong. You've already recorded the content. True. And you can also get the on-demand version up. Well, it's, it's already up, so it's a lot quicker when people join the party late. Um, if you're a physical event though, for instance, lots of events, they, they do their presentations and then they wait for questions and Q and A at the end. So this would be no different to that. Yep. Um, you wouldn't interrupt mid presentation with your question. Yeah. Um, other things that come into play are things like availability of, of presenters, right? So if you're trying to have three presenters coordinate in, in, in a 60 or 90 minute session and they're collectively spanning eight different or three different time zones, right? Eight hour span getting them together for practice sessions, getting them together on the exact same time live um, and and making sure everything goes off without a hitch. There's just more moving parts. So simulated live might be an easier approach. Um, Another thing you talked about was de-risking the delivery from a technical side. There's also a consideration of what is actually said and delivered, right? So for certain programs, both the producers and the speakers themselves really want to de-risk the situation of going off uh, on a tangent live, right? Addressing a question or covering a topic um, where, where they, they just have to pivot while they're presenting in front of a few hundred people. They like the idea of saying, well, if we pre-record this, if we hit something we don't like, or if I deliver something in, in a way that's incorrect, I have the opportunity to redo that, make sure the delivery of everything we say in this 60-minute session, if it was a webinar, for example, is exactly what we want to tell the audience. So that's a big part of simulated live events as well. What are the differences between, say, smaller online conferences and the larger online exhibitions? 
I'm talking you know, the more of the sort of analyticas or mm-hmm. semicon wests. Uh, so like a, a huge online meeting. Technically, like how how would you approach those two, and what do you see the main differences are? Yeah, this is a big question as well. So, but maybe picking a few things um, that come top of mind. First, it's it's the objectives of the planning committee and the groups involved. I mean, a small meeting is. I would argue that typically what you're trying to do is connect with people that you either already know or are very familiar with because it's a smaller group, say 500 people. So maybe they're a group of scientists that are focused on a particular disease or research application that aligns with your services or products. Well, you'd likely already know these people. So in participating in this meeting from a vendor or industry standpoint, it's not about lead gen, it's about lead nurturing. It's about connecting with these people and, and learning more about you know, their, their current focus, their pitfalls, their challenges. You know, in contrast, big meetings, to me at least, starting at least with the vendor perspective, it's more about lead gen. It's about brand exposure, right? You're looking to in, participate in a very, very in a in a program that is going to expose your brand and the content that you're sharing within that program to a very large crowd. Not everybody in that crowd is going to be interested, but they're going to see some of you. So it's top of funnel, new leads in, um, less focused. Um, you're also participating to establish your brand and services within a specific industry, right? Which tends to be a bit bigger uh, in scope. Um, on the flip side, when we talk about attendees, uh, the scientists, uh, you know, they're focused on getting access to um, a larger scale of content, right? Seeing in our space, uh, seeing discoveries that are coming out of labs from all over the world uh, and and having an opportunity to network and meet new people. So I guess you could say there's similarities between participants and then exhibitors and sponsors. In the small meeting, Those I would also atar- argue that most attendees are meeting up with people they know, right? It's people they already work with, they collaborate them or they're following their research. And so, of course, there's a there's an opportunity there to meet new people, but it's also about participating in a group that you're already active in or with. Whereas big meetings, there might be a bigger focus on making new connections, and that's why, as I previously said, when we were talking about comparing like comparing webinars to virtual meetings, the biggest thing that differentiates a webinar or a series of webinars with a virtual meeting or virtual event is networking. It's the ability to have individuals participate in an online environment and in their control break out for little sidebars, connect with people, direct message them, uh, even have a video chat with them because um, that's one of the objectives of a bigger meeting, right? Connect with people that you never would otherwise know. Okay, so just to wrap things up now, um, in the next three to five years, what do you see are the major changes in the budget of a marketing manager of a medium-sized science engineering or healthcare firm? I think there's been a bit of a, you know, a, a shock and for some a rude awakening to the importance of content marketing. For, for most companies in the technology space, you don't have a bricks-and-mortar building that you invite people into, right? So it's not B2C um, uh, sales here, right? You're not inviting someone into your front door and saying, look at my products and meet my expertise staff and you know, uh, look at these examples and move through, move through this thing, the, these, these experiences in person um, uh, to learn about me and learn about how we could do business together. You are 
even before the pandemic, you were living in a world reliant on email, phone, um, not uh, daily and weekly in-person communication with large groups. You can only go to so many conferences. Um, and so companies should have been online, I would argue, in a bigger way, in a better way than they were when this pandemic hit. And for those that were active in digital marketing, content marketing, they're surviving. They're they're pivoting. They're doing more. As we said at the start, we're seeing companies double, triple down on what they're investing. Um, so in three to five years, I hope to see uh, a more serious attention to strategic planning in marketing. Um, there's a lot of old hat thinking still in this conservative industry that marketing is about pretty pictures and brochures and images and logos. That's part of marketing, but that isn't marketing. I'd also hope to see a stronger um, adoption of the topic of sales and marketing integration, appreciating that sales is one side of marketing and marketing is one side of sales. They're not mutually exclusive. They work hand in hand. Uh, marketing teams should be collecting data and coaching and share or sharing how salespeople can use this data to do their better jobs better. Equally, sales teams should be reporting back to the marketing teams to see to share what they're seeing um, on you know in the field in the battlefield. They're the feet on the street, um, and collectively, this should be creating strategies and teams that are extremely effective. But it uh, it requires that that leaders at companies acknowledge it's where they need to invest to to grow. Um, and that's, that's digital and content marketing for sure. Yeah. I'd 100% echo that, uh, digital content marketing and leadership. It's up to leadership to set the tone, um, in those areas. All right. That just about wraps things up for us. Thank you very much, Andy. Um, it's been great having your insight and, th- and we hope to have you back on the show very soon. Thanks, Ricky. Enjoyed it. Thanks again to Andy there for uh, sharing his fantastic knowledge and experience. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe in the usual places or at azonetwork.com. We'll see you next week when we welcome Michelle Nichols of Launch Solutions. Thanks for listening.